Welcome to Cube Cuddle, a podcast about Kubernetes and the people who build and use it. I'm your host, Rich Burroughs. Today, I'm speaking with Justin Garrison. Justin is a senior developer advocate at AWS. Welcome. Hey, Rich. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, you bet. Uh, I've actually really been looking forward to this. Uh, you and I have met several times in real life and had some good conversations. We had a nice chat in Valencia. So uh, I'm I'm looking forward to getting to uh, have a conversation with you to share with the listeners. Yeah, thanks. I've been a fan of the podcast since you started it. I've listened to every episode and love the people you have on. So I'm I'm thrilled to be a part of such a great group. All right. I'm 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 definitely quoting you on that. I'm definitely like putting that all over the KubeCuddle website. Um, so I start off asking folks um, how they got involved with these crazy computers in the first place. Uh, I needed money. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, like I did not have a computer growing up. I did not grow up with technology. Um, I, I managed to go to college and I had two jobs throughout college and I needed a job that I can work on the weekends. And there was a computer lab in my dorm um, that they had people that would come and help people print and, and fix the computers whenever needed, but really just babysit the computers. And so I signed up for that on the weekends. And that was my weekend job was Saturdays and Sundays. I would babysit the lab and I would do my homework because I would be in there for you know, eight hours a day or so. Um, so it was a great time for me just to dedicate doing homework and I got paid for it. And eventually I started to learn a little bit about computers. I didn't have a computer of my own, so I had to use the labs anyway. Um, and it wasn't until the next year that I actually got my first computer. And then I started doing more things with the computer department and, and ended up working at the university for nine years, um, doing, you know, help desk and desktop support and sysadmin roles and then just kind of kept growing from that. So yeah, it was, I was I needed money as a college student and I was like, oh, this computer thing looks really easy. I'll do that. <laughs> so what, what was your major when you were just working in the lab? Uh, I didn't have a major for the first two and a half years while I was in school. Gotcha. Uh, I narrowed it down to the things I didn't like to do and ended up on math and physics. Uh, I just, I, I liked those things. I dropped out of a computer science degree because it did not make sense to me. And I was just like, you know, the computer thing's kind of hard, but I really like this physics thing. And so I did that. When you say it didn't make sense, how's that? Uh, I remember my first computer science class and it was a C, C development class. And I, I got through it uh, with a lot of help, but I was like, I do not understand what we're doing and why we're doing it. So I ended up taking, <laughs> I think it was four CS classes, um, a couple C++ classes and a independent studies, yeah. which was my most, my, the most fun I had where I was designing a UI in C++. And I really liked the visual aspect of it. And the, the professor had this application that they wrote and they're like, I need a UI for this. And I was like, cool. And, but I still didn't make sense to me. I couldn't visualize how like the program would work. And it was, you know, a decent amount of, it wasn't a huge program, but I remember yeah. to get an understanding of it. I'm such a visual person that I actually went to the printer in the lab that I was working in and printed out the entire program. I printed out the program and, and laid it out <laughs> in the lab on the lab floor. And then I started taking a marker and marking up this calls that and that called this and this is where I need it. And that's the yeah. only way that I could understand what the software was doing. And then I was able to say, oh, so I need to add something here. I need something like this. And I, I kind of went from there um, because I really had, I couldn't just look at a text file and say like, oh, I get it. Um, and so I, I dropped out of a CS uh, degree as like what I was thinking of doing. And I was like, I, it just didn't make sense to me. And it wasn't until my first full-time job 
that I actually started like programming made sense because I was solving problems, not uh, fulfilling educational goals. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think that's a really good way to put it too. And, you know, I've, I've uh, talked to a lot of people who come from lots of different backgrounds, you know, and like I was, I was a theater major in college and I dropped out. Right. And, and I went back and started studying, um, well, taking some core classes so I could study computer science and got a job and was like, all right, I'll just <laughs> do this for a living instead of like go to college. Um, but, but it's interesting because it definitely seems like there are a lot of folks in the Kubernetes community who don't come from that kind of traditional computer science background. Yeah. And I, I didn't do a lot of developments for a while. I, I worked help desk for seven years or so. And so my, my background comes a lot from like documentations important. And, and making things understandable for users is super important. And that's really where I kind of like made a lot of career growth is uh, the more senior I got, the more, the less code I wrote anyway, and the more documentation I ended up writing and making that documentation understandable and navigable and, and able to let people solve their own problems by something I wrote a year ago um, was way better than, you know, spending some time on code or adding some tests to things because I was like, actually, no, helping the user do the thing was the more important part. Well, this is all super interesting, and it fills in some uh, some <laughs> things about about your particular skill set that I think you have uh, that I actually want to get to in a bit. Um, but um, but what specifically about Kubernetes? Like, what got you into like the cloud native stuff? I got into containers pretty early uh, when I was solving problems at work, um, just trying to figure out like how to make things more packageable. Um, the place I was working at. Uh, we were a big Red Hat shop, and so we had a lot of pa you know rel packaging. We were writing spec files and RPMs, and I was like, you know, like this isn't doing enough for what we needed. Uh, and and we were doing a lot of you know more forward thinking things like software collections. No one even talks about that anymore. But it was like this like loose way to you know contain your um, your path and your you know dependencies. But containers really was just like, oh, actually, this is a holistic way of doing it. This is a more holistic approach of I need users, I need network, I need all these things that could be isolated. And so I started building that at work and just figuring out, hey, where would this fit? How does this work? And um, I remember seeing a talk about Kubernetes at uh, Southern California Linux Expo. And this is a while ago. And they were talking about pods and containers. I was like, I don't understand this. I don't understand why I need this. And I was going down the route of looking at Mesos and Mesosphere and even Nomad to some degree, because those were all kind of already in the area of like, I was creating VMs and running containers on them. Uh, and I was the scheduler. I had to, I, had a I literally had a spreadsheet <laughs> that was like, this server has these apps on it. This is the ports they're on. When I need it's, to update it, I talk to yeah. this team. And like, that was, that was how we did it. Like we were on-prem and this is what we we're doing. It's, it's so funny that you mentioned that because I think Kelsey brought that up in the interview that we did um, as well. And it's, if not, it was another discussion that I've had with him in the past, but um, it's absolutely true. And people, you know, People, I think, don't necessarily get the way we were doing things like ten years ago, and and I was that same. I was the scheduler too. I was that. I was that that person who knew which service yep. ran on which hosts and had it all memorized. And yep. yeah, yeah, the wow. meat scheduler. It was uh, you. Yeah. Were, <laughs> you did the thing, and um, I met Kelsey at. Uh, HashiConf when they announced Nomad and he was giving a demo about Nomad. And so I was, it was great meeting him, you know, in person and talking to him. And I ended up inviting him. Um, it was right when he was switching from CoreOS to Google. I said, Hey, can you come 
do a similar training day about Kubernetes at, at my work. And he, yeah, he agreed to do it. This was, this was like a prototype for like Kubernetes the hard way. Um, he had another repo that he was like playing with and we had a two day training, which was awesome. I don't remember what year this was now. 2016, yeah. probably like 2016 or something. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and, yeah. uh, and we had a great turnout for it and a lot of people started learning it. And, and that really those conversations kind of changed my mind about what Kubernetes was because I thought it was more monolithic like Nomad was, where Nomad didn't have a flexible scheduler. It didn't have some of those like hooks to things. It added some huge benefits in speed and, and native execution. You didn't need containers, yeah. that sort of stuff. But it wasn't really what I was looking for. And then the more I was learning about it, the more I was realizing, oh, actually, the flexibility of Kubernetes does solve these problems. So I wrote a, a scheduler in Bash um, as a prototype of just like, how does this work? You, you what? <laughs> can you repeat that? Yeah, you can, it's on GitHub. It was it was my sort of like learning experience of learning the API. So if you look for Bash scheduler, um, it was my first like, I started learning Kubernetes by poking at the API. And every lunch break, I basically was like spinning up a cluster, writing some Bash. And look like, how does this work? Where does this node come from? How does this piece work? And I started just, it was just, you know, randomized containers. It didn't place them really, but I wanted to learn how to extend it, what the API was like. And and the language I was most familiar with was Bash. And so I was like, I'm just going to do curl and said, and that's all I needed. I was just like, was, wow. I didn't even use JQ. It was really ugly um, at the time. And I, so, I have to say that that I wrote a scheduler in Bash is a sentence I didn't ever expect to hear <laughs> someone utter. Yeah, but it was my... But that's awesome. It was my chance to learn it and then my chance to show it to people because it ended up being, you know, it was less than 100 lines when I first wrote it. And I was like, I just told someone like, hey, this is the API. This is all you have to do. And I was working at Disney Animation at the time. And so we were scheduling jobs for render jobs. I was like, how do we, we had a custom scheduler for those jobs. And I was like, this actually could be a better way for us to manage this stuff. And so I was showing that team like, hey, this is kind of how this works. This is where these things fit in. And so I just started getting more and more into Kubernetes, learning how the structure of the API was the benefits, right? The container orchestration was great, but all the hooks and the flexibility and, and, CRDs, you know, at, at that time was uh, third-party resources, whatever. The way to extend it was the flexibility and why it was so powerful. It's interesting that that's your use case that you mentioned Nomad because I think that like batch jobs is probably the most popular Nomad use case yeah. from what I've heard. Yeah, and I was I was heavily looking at it uh, because that was, but again, the way that we were doing our jobs needed very specific scheduling placements and, and Nomad didn't have that flexibility at the time. And so I was like, that's why I started with Mesos because like, Mesos had all the flexibility where you had their frameworks and, you know, two-stage scheduling and stuff. And I was deep into that. I'm like, but I don't know Java. I was like, I can learn Java for this thing, but let's, let's figure it out. And then I was, you know, Nomad was so much simpler and so much easier to get going. And it was, it was so much faster and I didn't need to containerize everything. A lot of benefits there. And then once I went to Kubernetes, I was like, oh, actually, I get the other parts of it. And I still wanted native execution. I still wanted some things that, that Kubernetes couldn't do. Um, but the other areas of extension made a lot more sense to me. That's all super interesting. And I think that, like, um, I don't know. I was a HashiCorp ambassador for a couple of years. I'm a big fan of them yeah. and their tools. Um, I would say that I am probably as big of a fan of Nomad as you can be without ever actually having used Nomad. <laughs> like, I don't know that I've ever run a single workload, you know, with Nomad, but I've I've always thought it was interesting. And, and my take on it has been, at least recently, you know, within the last few years has always been that, like, I think that 
if you have maybe more limited use cases. And especially if you're in an environment where you're using all those other HashiCorp tools and you want to like bank on those integrations that they have built into things that that um, I think it definitely could make sense, you know, more sense than Kubernetes for some use cases. And and um, it seems like there are people out there who use both too. You know, they use Nomad for some things and, and Kubernetes for some things. So. Yeah, and Nomad still has some super amazing features like multi-data center awareness um, via console and all these things yeah. that I, I think are fascinating use cases for people that really, they want to do that. They have large batch jobs and services and native jobs and all that stuff makes perfect sense in Nomad. And people have been bolting that kind of onto Kubernetes sometimes. And a lot of cases, like actually... The thing you might just want is Nomad um, because you get, you know, vaults, you can have vault, you can have console, you can have uh, Nomad as a scheduler. And it brings a lot of that in there. Um, I think that Kubernetes on the, because of that flexibility, because of all those hooks, because of the other areas of just like, actually what a lot of people wanted was web services. And what people just wanted was horizontal scalable web services. And, yeah. and they didn't really care about fast placement of jobs because they could scale up a little sooner. Right? Like there's a lot of things that are just like, actually, yeah. some of those benefits for a, a broad swath of people was just like, actually, I just run a Python service and it's OK if it takes a second, two seconds to start up. I don't care if it's scheduled that fast. Just just get it out there. And all of the ecosystem of Kubernetes really came around that. It's just like, hey, we can make this thing really easy. And, and it resonated with a lot of people. Yeah. And I think that, again, you know, if you if you sort of travel back in time a little bit to those days when you and I were like the schedulers, you know, it was like I, I was working at a Java shop and we had a bunch of Java services and I would go into this custom UI that we have and I would press a button to spin up a new copy of a service. Right. Or to restart it or something like that. So like. Kubernetes scheduling something within a minute of it dying is like way faster than I could ever have done that, right? I, I don't know about your first time like running Docker or Kubernetes deployment. Like my first time running Docker, I thought I broke something because I ran this, you know, Docker run and I was like in a new, weird shell. I was like, it broke my shell. I was like, oh, it's like, how could this be? And I'm like, wait a minute. It couldn't have started that fast. There's no way that this worked like that. But now I'm root. Like, is this like some weird... You know, escalation oh, vulnerability you were in the container. Yeah, I was in the container, and I was just like, "What is gotcha. going on?" And I was so confused. And same thing with Kubernetes. When I ran my first Kubernetes deployment, I was like, "Okay, Kubernetes deployment. You know, give me three replicas of Nginx." I'm like, "Oh well, it broke. It didn't do anything. It couldn't have. You know, it returned way too fast. It couldn't have done anything." And and then I go back and look. I'm like, "Wait a minute. It says they're running. What what's going on here?" And I had to really dig deep into. It. I'm like wait a minute, this can actually be how fast things are because I'm used to cloning VMs. I'm used to, you know, taking these like longer, bigger processes and making them into something that I could replicate. And and it was always like, oh yeah, wait, you know, a minute, wait two, wait a half hour, whatever it was. Uh, and then containers came around. I was just like, wait, this is like less than seconds. Like I don't, this doesn't well, make and, sense. And think about, Think about the feedback loop, too, where, you know, a service dies on a weekend and someone gets a page and maybe they get to their laptop and can respond, you know, half an hour later. And then they spend some time digging into it and, you know, start the new one. And it's like, yeah, any any kind of automation, you know, that you can have that's going to that's going to schedule that job again. Um, is is likely to be faster yeah. <laughs> unless, unless it's like a cry job that runs once an hour or something. Um, so. So you're at Disney and you're using Kubernetes and it's very early and you're in this situation where you're, uh, I take it, trying to kind of evangelize this thing, trying to convince other people inside the company that that you all should adopt this platform? Yeah. 
I, I did and that. how did that go? It went terribly. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard a bit of this story already, so I'm not, I'm not surprised by your answers. But, um, but I, I think that there are probably a lot of people in this situation with Kubernetes and with other tools too, you know, who've been down the same road where they're trying to get folks to adopt something that they know really would help everyone, you know? Yeah. And I think as a, as an engineer, I often get, you know, narrowly cited on like the technology is going to solve the problem and, and the problem isn't a technology problem. The problem is uh, people and training and inertia and other tools and integrations and all of the other things on top of the one technology. And, and I focused way too much on everyone should go to Kubernetes because I was sold on it because I experienced it. And then it was, you know, a little while of building, you know, what, what was there, but then way, way longer of. I need more docs. I need more training. I need more examples. I need more tools. I need more integrations. All these things that we had already for how people were doing things, uh, those were all the gaps. And, and those were the things that uh, needed help. But also, you can't do it alone. You can't be the only champion of a new technology and a new <laughs> service. And you have to have yeah. at least some level of buy-in from people, from your customers. And and that I, I did not have. I had a couple of teams that were all excited and ready to use it, but then others were, were absolutely against it because I very much underestimated how much that might encroach on things that they had built and, and the actual oh, like yeah. emotional response and the you know professional response of like, I understand it now, but at the time I was way too, too lost in the technology to understand like this actually makes them maybe feel like they're not good enough or the thing they build is no longer good enough. And that actually oh. can replace, you know, that as like, hey, you're the thing you have been doing for the last 10 years. Don't worry about no, this, this thing's better. It's not a great way to talk about something. And it's not a way to like get buy-in or other people excited about it. And so I was very ignorant to those sorts of things of just the human factor of, what a new technology like Kubernetes can be in, in an existing organization with established norms and services and technologies. And, and so it was, it was definitely not a, a great fit uh, at the time. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that it would be much easier now. Right. And, and, you know, it's become such a standard thing that like, you know, if you went into a lot of shops and said, Hey, we're going to adopt Kubernetes, it wouldn't be a shocker to anyone. But, um, but yeah, back then, you know, it was, it was a lot more bleeding edge. And, you know, when you, you mentioned Mesos earlier and, you know, there really was a conversation to be had even, yep. you know, back then as to whether you should be using Mesos or Kubernetes. Um, but I think that, um, you know, I've been through that same kind of down that same road and, um, I, it was a different tool, but I, I once was brought in to a company specifically to implement a, a certain tool <laughs> and was told that everybody was on board and arrived to find out that wasn't the case, you know? And, and I think that, um, it was, it was kind of ironic because, uh, I ended up moving on to another opportunity. And, and by the time that happened, that was just about the time where people started <laughs> to come around <laughs> to the fact that, that it was the right move. It, it takes time. I mean, the technology, the thing that you can build, uh, you can always prototype something faster than you can change someone's mind about it. And in understanding where to get the buy-in and where to spend your time is actually more on the people side of it than the technology side is a hard thing to learn, especially as an early engineer, where I'm like, look at all these problems I can solve. And it's like, actually, no, don't worry about those. 
get buy-in from one or two people first and then figure out what the problem is and understand the user base a lot better than just going out and saying like, I'm sold on this, so everyone else should be too. Yeah, I feel like people really need to see things work too, right? Like you need to have some sort of a POC or something that really clearly shows people like how this is going to help solve their problems that that just hearing that or like reading some blog posts or whatever isn't enough to like uh, really make it for for most engineers, I think. Yeah, and focusing in on what the next wave of problems would be is always difficult too, mm. because you can compare two things. Here's my POC. It does half of what your existing thing does, but it focuses on these three or four things better. And someone to look at it, it's like, well, it doesn't check all the boxes. It's not a complete solution because the other thing we have now does, you know, X, Y, and Z, or it does something better. It's like, actually, yes, we can add some of those things, but what's the important thing that you need and how is what you have now going to get you to the next scaling or, you know, speed or whatever it is you're trying to do. Those are the areas that are really hard to focus on and hard to sell people on. Because again, it's just like a checklist. The POC is going to fail every time. Uh, but understanding where customers are going and where users are going and how technology is advancing, those are the areas that are really important to focus on. So I know this was a while ago, but are there are there any specific things that you can remember that people either didn't understand about Kubernetes or like, you know, kind of pushed back on? One of my favorite examples is monitoring and understanding what containers are doing and servers are doing and how you're actually monitoring them. And uh, we had tooling internally to do monitoring and it, it was all, you know, VM based. So things didn't change very frequently and, and containers are coming and going, right? And we're just like, oh, you can monitor this, you can monitor that. And it's just like, well, how do I, how do I monitor one container? It's like, well, don't worry about one container, worry about the service. I'm like, no, that doesn't make sense. I need to monitor a container. And I had multiple conversations and I, I you know, was talking to vendors and people that help us do yeah. some of that stuff. And, and one person I remember very adamantly wanted to put IPMI in every one of the containers. If you're familiar with IPMI for scraping the the path of like, it's very old school way of like monitoring devices, like, right? Like I have a switch right. that gives me IPMI. I have some light bulbs or whatever. And it's like, those are the most cryptic sort of paths and numbers and things that you, you can't understand. And in trying to say like, well, every container needs IPMI. I need an IPMI endpoint that I can scrape. And I was like, wow, like this is, this is going to be a different shift because these aren't devices that we installed once and they last for 10 years. This is a container that lasts for seconds. And, and you able to, you know, scrape those things. Like we have to change the conversation about like, okay, what are you, what is the goal that you're trying to do? And in this tool, I understand was what they wanted and what they knew and how integrations worked for them in their world. But it was not the conversation we needed for this type of monitoring going forward. And so at that point, it was really about, okay, Let's take what you know. Let's take the scraping side of it. Let's see your paths. How, how do you do that? Now let's look at Prometheus. Hey, cool. It's a pull-based model. There's paths and there's these variables. How do we pull that in to like give you these metrics similarly to what you understood and make sure that you came along to understand the new thing that, hey, look, there's a lot of similarities here. We're not throwing away all of your knowledge of how this stuff works, but we're going to change a few things to help you get to the next wave of monitoring at different scales or focusing on different things. I don't care if a disk is full. I care if a service is down. I don't care, you know, like those Absolutely. sorts of things are were way more important, but it was hard to kind of shift some of those things forward because they were so used to 
what's the temperature of the CPU? It's like, don't worry about it. Like, this, it's a cluster of machines. Like, I don't need that one CPU core temperature anymore. I need to focus on the, the service level. And, and so bringing people up to those sorts of speeds and, and different ways of thinking about it without throwing all the stuff away. These people are super smart. They've had years and years of experience. They've done amazing things. And we don't want to just say like, all that stuff is crap now. Like, you can't just throw it away, right? Like, the people are important and bringing them into how do you do something in a different way with newer tooling? Those were really hard. I've absolutely seen what you're talking about. Like, I've been on teams before where I was the person who was trying to make that argument that, like, we shouldn't care about, you know, monitoring every instance of an app really closely and, like, looking at things that way. What we really care about is service health. And like for people who are used to doing it that old way, I think that is really hard to get their heads around sometimes. And it's not to say that hard drive being full isn't a problem, right? But like the service being available is the thing we should focus on. I, the same cluster, I was troubleshooting or, or, or setting up centralized log collection. And so I ran a container with the yes command. And if you're familiar with the yes command, it just spits out whys, right? It just does it as fast as possible. And there's actually studies on like the yes command is faster than like a screen can print. Like it'll print yeses faster than anything else. And Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's amazing like how fast it can do print a why. And so I ran this container collecting some, you know, logs centrally and I come back the next day and all the services are down. I broke the entire cluster because every one of the hard drives <laughs> filled up with yeses. They are all whys, the entire hard drive. <laughs> These are bare metal servers. These are like 500 terabyte drives and they just had yeses throughout the entire thing because it printed so fast. And Kubernetes failed over to the next one. It's like, oh, that drive's dead. Hey, go to this one now. And it just <laughs> stuck my pod on the next machine, filled up the hard drive. So that's important too. Like you need to be aware of those things. But the service being on, when I came in, it was like cube cuddle, like where'd my API go? Like what's going on? And, and then I had to dig into it. And those were like, oh, wow, my hard drive's full. What happened? I'm like, oh, wow, there's like a terabyte file with all the Ys. This is not good. <laughs> so it's important, but like knowing where, what level or what layer of the stack you kind of need to focus on is is even more important. That's that's super interesting. Um, the yes command has, has caused more outages than than benefits in my life. I'll tell you that. I have other stories, but it's always fun. <laughs> maybe maybe uh, if I start a podcast about the yes command, um, you'll be my first guest. Sweet. Um, I I want to shift gears a little bit and get into. Um, your uh, career as what I'll call a Kubernetes influencer. So, <laughs> so you've become known for making these amazing TikToks where you explain concepts like what a container is or um, the ones about the Kubernetes autoscalers, you know, how they work. Um, we're, we're very popular. And I think that you've done um, at least one conference talk that was a TikTok video. And I wanted to to get into this a little bit and and ask you about how you got into making TikToks and like what about that uh, platform specifically appeals to you. I I I always try to teach the way I like to learn, and so until something makes sense to me, I just don't have an idea of how I would. You know, you can't teach something you don't know, and yeah, I learned as a kid a lot from people like, like shows like Bill Nye. Bill Nye the Science Guy was like my jam. I love that show. All of his like crazy like ways to represent things and show things off. And uh, and as an adult, like I love Alton Brown, right? Like like his cooking style of like he shows what's going on inside of it. And even like 
Adam Savage, like Mythbusters, like they do like these very like extravagant, like visually representative things of just like, this is what's happening. I'm going to show you this thing. And at my time at Disney Animation, I learned so much more about how important the visual side of things are for like, I can tell you, a I can show you a story in literally 10 seconds of animation. And, and I saw those over and over again. I was just like, this is amazing. Like you had no words, no music, but I understood the entire life cycle of that story wrapped up in just that little ball bouncing or whatever it was. And so those sorts of things just amazed me at how fast people could connect to the stories, connect to the things and learn something from it. And I started TikTok like everyone else during COVID and I was just like watching it. And <laughs> the more and more I started watching it, I was like, I'm learning a lot from this platform, from all of the people that were like, I wish I knew this before I was 30. I wish I, you know, like all of those sorts of things it was like, I had no idea you could do that. And they, a lot of them were like, practical sort of like what we used to call life hacks <laughs> like in an older generation I was like oh these were life hacks I'm like actually it's just something that everyone should really know <laughs> and it was just common sense for <laughs> a certain age group or or a certain you know group of society uh, but a lot of people still didn't know it and that information isn't evenly distributed and and knowing how things work isn't something that is just universal and and so I I've been trying to do this way before TikTok. Uh, I have a video literally still on my hard drive from 2010, I believe, when I was writing for a website called HowToGeek. And I was trying to get them into doing video productions. And I have a very terrible video of me explaining <laughs> how hard drives work. And it was around when SSDs were coming out. And I was explaining yeah. the difference between what is a, a spindle drive and an SSD. And I had uh, literally like, a cork board for an SSD of like, they do wear out. Like you can pin it so many times. And I had filing cabinets and I was explaining RAID. And I literally had like videos where like I was taking pieces of paper and I was putting part of it in this drawer and part of it in the next filing cabinet in the other drawer. Oh, wow. To explain how you replicate data and then I can put these things back together if I lost a filing cabinet. And so that was just like, 12 years ago, I was filming these videos because I was like, this is how I like to learn it. This is how I like to explain it. And, and I was doing those things in sort of like a medium long form formats. And they were kind of hard. They were, they were hard to kind of keep the sort of uh, inertia or at least just the engagement of just like, hey, we're making this exciting and fun because you do have to go like deep into like, this is this thing that I want you to understand better. Yeah. On the TikTok side for if it's a minute, I'm not going to go deep at all. I'm just going to tell you something exists <laughs> and I'm going to let you go as deep as you want. You can just know that something vaguely works this way, or I understand that, oh, this is a thing that's here. Now, what else do I want to learn about it? And I, I've gone down plenty of rabbit holes myself of just like, oh, wow, what's that thing? Let me open a browser. I got to look this up. Oh, I found this. It's in pocket now. I'm going to read it this weekend. I found a book and like, I can go deep on some of that stuff real quick, but just like, this is interesting. And on the TikTok side, I'm really just trying to help people be more aware about some of these things and give a general idea about, hey, what is this thing? How does it, ex how, vaguely, why does it exist? Because you have the, the kind of what, what is that? I can tell you, hey, here's a website, go here. I don't really care about that. You have the really deep stuff that's like, this is the code you need to write to do that thing. That's okay, but it's really hard in a minute format. And there's that middle ground of like, why does something work this way? Why is this important? Why do I care? And in knowing, getting people to get to the why does do I care, that's kind of the bridge a lot of times for people to know like what exists and how do I do it. And I try to focus a lot of my stuff on that sort of why does this, why does it work this way or, or why is it here? Um, what problems does it solve? That's sort of like the area that I try to do. And again, 
because I like props, because it, I like visualizations, because that's how I think about it. Uh, that's how I represent it. One of my cube, my first KubeCon talk was I was up on stage and we built Kubernetes, quote unquote, with a spreadsheet. I had a Google sheet, did what I did with containers. And I had four people on stage that were my, actually I actually had five people, like my scheduler, my controller manager, and three nodes. And I gave them balloons and my, my nodes had balloons to run. And people <laughs> told me which node to schedule things on. And that's, we recreated, I was the API server and we recreated what the workflow that Kubernetes goes through. When I say, hey, give me a job. Okay, it's a Ruby job. Here you go. I'm going to put a one here. That's it. I just put a one here. Now the scheduler or controller manager needs to expand that. Now the scheduler needs to schedule it. Yeah. Now the kubelet needs to pull the job. And, and like just going through that workflow a couple of times and all of the complexity of Kubernetes kind of makes a little more sense. And you're just like, oh, this is what it's doing. And once you understand where those pieces fit, it was a lot easier to troubleshoot things too. Because it was like, oh, this pod isn't getting assigned. My scheduler is probably down. Right? Like I, could, I know immediately like, oh yeah, I see the pod there. It exists. It's in the, you know, my controller manager made it. Kubelet's not running it. Oh, look, it's scheduler. And in helping you figure out like why some of those things exist and what problems they solved um, was really where I tried to focus a lot on like the TikTok side of things. So I just have a lot of fun with how do I explain something in an entertaining way? It's really hard to get it to be a minute. I always, I don't try to do the three minute ones. I try to do one minute because that's kind of an attention span area, but also like YouTube still limits to a minute. Um, it's a little easier. Like I will give, I will watch almost anything for a minute. I will waste a minute anytime. <laughs> like it doesn't matter. Like I was like, yeah, I'll minute. Sure. No problem. If it's three minutes, I'm like, I don't, I'll, I'll take that challenge. Right. I feel like I could make a video you wouldn't want. <laughs> but, <laughs> but once I get to like three minutes or five minutes, I'm kind of like, ah, I'm busy. You know, like, I don't, I don't know if I, I don't know if I have the time for that. Uh, it's only five minutes, but I'll watch, I'll watch 10 one, one minute videos to look for my answer before I'll watch one five minute video that I know solves my, <laughs> answers my question, right? Like, I don't know why that is, but just the psychology behind it. I'm like, yeah, no, I'll spend more time on one minute videos. And, and so it's been challenging for me, but it's been really fun. It's been really, I'm having a blast with it just because it's, I get to be a little more on the creative side of like, I write code. I do a lot of development stuff. I do a lot of technology. And then I try to just explain it to everyone else. And I try to make it consumable yeah. for a lot more people that maybe don't come from the same background, that learn things the way I do and just helping them in those ways. It's like, hey, it's also okay to be weird. <laughs> it's also okay to do things <laughs> and teach things in an unconventional way. And that is totally fine. And, and giving people some of that freedom. I love seeing other people like do similar formats of like, hey, I don't have your background. I don't have all of the like wealth of knowledge that you do have from, from your experience. So you're going to do a different demo that might be similar. You might do a drawing, you might do a different prop, whatever it might be, yeah. but it's great just seeing people take those things and run it for themselves. Do you like have a topic first and then think of a way to explain it? Or do you just do these ideas for the visualizations pop in your head first or how does it work? For most of them, I have a list. I have a note. And I just, anytime someone asks me, hey, how does this work? I write it down. And I don't, I don't care. Like, I don't, I don't have any clue. I may not even know what it is. Right? It's like, I, I don't know what that is, but I'm going to research it. And at some point it might come up and it might be something that's like, oh, I need to learn this. Uh, and then yeah. I just keep that note. And then at the weirdest times, an idea for how to represent something comes in my head. Uh, I might mm -hmm. be out of the store. I was like, oh, this is it. I don't know why this is it, um, but like it, the, I don't know why it works that way, but having that note and yeah. having it written down where I don't have to think about it all the time, but occasionally I'll remember one. I'm like, oh, actually, you know what? This is kind of a perfect representation. And 
they don't, they're not all amazing. They're not all like, oh, that's the best representation ever. But how it clicked in my head of like, you know what? I just did one on um, like uh, probes, application probes, like startup probes and liveliness probes. And, and I had like squeaky ducks and like a, a rubber chicken. And I'm like, it's giving literally like a sound. Like to me, it like whenever like that health check's happening, it's like squeezing a chicken, those rubber chickens. And I was like, I can hear the honk almost. And, and like, that's the thing that's just like the application is like, yeah, I'm still here. Like, as long as you hear the sound, like Kubelet just keeps running and it's fine. And, and those things are important, but just tying those things together, just like, oh, when I think of it, I'll make a list of three or four things. And if I get some of them, I'll get a theme. I, I did one on, um, persistent volumes. And I just had buckets. I had buckets in my backyard. I'm like, oh, it's a bucket. It's just a store. It's something to store anything. And I don't, it's not, it's NFS, it's S3. It's I don't care what it is, but it's a bucket of storage. And now I had a theme. And so I went out and I recorded, I think four of them that were all storage based, based on these buckets. And I was just like, okay, cool. I'm just going to do it. I'm just going to record four of them. They're all part of the theme. And now that prop I can reuse and I can always rely back on the like, Hey, this is the theme I have for storage is different size buckets. And the, the, auto scaling one, I have little plastic containers with water and a big four by four. That's my memory, my out of memory killer. And like those themes are just something I have now. And I just keep reusing them. Anytime I'm representing something in that space, I just fall back to like, Hey, how would this fit that analogy? Is it, does it fit? If not, it's okay too. But in a lot of cases, I keep reusing the same sort of props of like, Hey, I have a a bunch of uh, like play balls that I represent for like workloads. And like, I bought a bag of them for my kids for summer. And I was like, I can just reuse these. Like these are, these are workloads. I don't care what it is. I don't care what's inside, but this is how I represent it now. And, and so I using that sort of like inertia of just like, Hey, now I have like this garage full of props um, that work for some of these things. Uh, it just has been easy to kind of rely back on them. And like, if something is new or on the edge, I'm like, how would I represent secrets? How would I represent you know, something else in this space. Cool. I'll probably be like a lock or a safe. Right? Cause like physically. That's super, super interesting that you're kind of developing this visual language, <laughs> you know, that you're reusing. Um, that's super cool. Uh, one of the other things that you do is uh, you do this live stream called containers from the couch. And I was, uh, had the pleasure of being on one of the episodes. Uh, I'll, I'll link to that in the show notes. We talked about vCluster, one of the open source tools that I work with a lot. Um, I think that people who stream about a bunch of different tools like that are in a really interesting position that they have a chance to kind of get a view of maybe more of the ecosystem than the average person does. Uh, I'm wondering, like, if that's been the case for you and and maybe what some of the things are that you've learned about. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's just like starting a podcast, right? You start a podcast so you can talk to cool people and and maybe you wouldn't get a half hour of their time, you know, if you didn't have a podcast, but you're like, hey, come on my podcast. They're like, yeah, I'll talk to you. And and that's how I used to, I had a podcast back in the early 2000s. And that's how I talked to cool yeah. people. Because I was like, hey, come on my podcast. And they're like, well, what's a podcast? And, and, and so you had to explain that first, but now it's a live stream, right? It's like, hey, I have this live stream. Would you come show your project or what you're working on or something? And we're going to live stream and record it. And uh, I like how we formatted. I didn't start containers on the couch, but I've kind of uh, been very involved uh, early on was it was all about the live demos. It was all about, we want to, no slides. We want to see a terminal. If our goal is to get to a terminal within 10 minutes. And if we're not in a terminal in 10 minutes, we need to figure out maybe we needed someone different on the podcast or on the, on, the, on the stream to actually show us what's going on. Because most of our audience were people that were building and they wanted to see something in action and they wanted to see how it worked. And they love seeing when it breaks. 
They love seeing us troubleshoot things and <laughs> in doing that live. But again, it's like live streams are really stressful because they're live. I can't, I can't edit things really easily. Uh, but all of the best feedback I always get was like, I loved it when that broke. I loved it when you troubleshoot because then they see your thought process. They see how you're going to go about like, oh, I might be familiar with this. Maybe I'm not, but let's just start. Like, is, did I run the yes command somewhere? <laughs> like, did I fill up another hard drive? Like, <laughs> let's start there and then work our way up to like figure out where this is broken. And, and those are just a lot of fun. And so, yeah, it's the show. Uh, we've kind of s- split it out. That's where the short started, um, which is like I had it early this year. I was like, I'm going to do 10. I'm going to do 10 shorts. If people like them, I'll keep doing them. If nobody likes them, it's fine. It was a pretty low effort to kind of get 10 shorts out there. And, and so we were focusing on live streams. Um, we have a bunch of like other pre-recorded content that's in the like mid range of like five to 10 minutes of content. Um, and then the live streams are, are typically like 40 minutes to an hour. And so we kind of have those like different formats, depending on where you're at in your day, depending on what you're trying to learn, depending on how much time you have. Yeah. It's obviously a pretty different thing to like do a demo, you know, that's like not going to fit a one minute video right. for most things. Right. So, um, yeah. Are there any specific episodes you want to like call out to people that you think are super interesting that the listeners might want to check out? Oh man. Not to, not to leave anyone else out, but yeah, no, I mean, there's been so many like just cool projects. We, I focused a lot of my projects on similar to, um, TGI Kate's, which, uh, Joe was doing for a while, which was like Friday, like, let's just pick a project and learn it. Um, we've done some that I wasn't even on that I loved, uh, with, um, HashiCorp on um, uh, Waypoints, uh, which was awesome just because oh, like, yeah. like the HashiCorp team just like came to the stream and was just answering questions. And I wasn't even on it, but I was in chat at the time. And so like Brent and Adam were running it and it was just like, oh, this is really cool. Like that, the development team's here. And so I love talking to people that have been building the projects because there's like my mindset was like I started it here. And it kind of grew beyond that or I went to these other things. And so um, some of the shows I've done for like our projects, I really like like the Carpenter project. I'm, I'm a big fan of like I've been working with them for a while now. Um, so that's that's been fun because cool demos and I, I get to work pretty closely with that team. Um, the Even like the load balancer controller. It's like the most like matter of fact, like that has to exist in your Kubernetes cluster, but it's kind of boring. But also it's like, wait, I can do what? Like, how does that work? And I learn from the developers, like the, the depth of like functionality and like configuration. I was just like, I had no idea that was possible. And, and those sorts of things are really fun. We're like, yeah, you can, you can collapse all your, you know, load balance, your service endpoints into one load balancer if you want it, right? If depending on how many services you have, it's like, you don't need 50 load balancers. You can do one and just, you know, the, the actual ALB can trigger that stuff. And I was like, well, that's, I, I never knew that was possible. And, and so those sorts of things are, are always fun. The things that I learn things. And, and of course, I mean, like the virtual cluster was fun because my favorite, my favorite shows are the ones that end up in a PR, the ones that end up with like someone committed code because this existed. And that one was one where I was just like, Hey, this thing's really cool. And you have these, this idea of distributions inside of eCluster. Yeah. We, we have EKS distro, which is the Amazon managed, you know, EKS bits. Uh, people could run that if you wanted to add the flag, like that is something. And we had plenty of partners. We use it for EKS anywhere. We use it for, you know, managed EKS, all these places. Like if, if someone wants to test against our actual bits and they're just like, oh, I need this version of cluster fast. Yeah, you can use it in EKS. You can create an EKS cluster, but you also can create a virtual cluster for something that's, you know, lower effort of just like, oh, I just want to test something for five minutes or 10 minutes or figure out how this thing works. That's so much faster. Yeah, no, I, I love the virtual cluster stuff. It's been a blast to work with. And um, I'll 
I will link to that uh, that episode we did in the show notes so people can check it out if they would like to. Um, and yeah, I just uh, I just had a, a wonderful time on the stream and would definitely recommend it to other people if you have some technology you'd like to show off. Uh, hit hit Justin up and see if he could get you on there. Yeah, and one of our one of the hard things on it is just like the backlog of things we want to do. It's just so much. And it's just, there's so many cool projects and there's so many places, so many things we want to feature. And when we're trying to balance that of just like, what should we do in a stream and what should we do in a, a smaller episode? And we're finding that like this shift to like f less than 10 minutes is where a lot of people want to be. And so a lot of the content that we want to show off in streams is becoming more of this like shorter form video because it just gives people an appetite of what exists. And we don't need to do an entire 60 minutes on, on showing off, you know, a specific thing. We're just, again, trying to tell people like this exists, here's what it's for. Here's how you use it. it if you want to go ahead, like in, in almost everything we feature on the show has been open source and free and available for people just to go try it, which has been really cool. But that has, has been like a weird balance that we've been learning over the last year with three different formats now and different places to publish the content on Twitch, on YouTube. Um, I We cross post the shorts different places and just people consume the content different places. And and so it's been really, it's been a learning experience because I've never been like a, I don't want to call myself a YouTuber, but I, I like I, I manage a YouTube channel and, and I do that as, as a percentage of my work is making sure the content and the information is accurate and, and good for people that want to watch it. Yeah, I mean, like I said, I think that Kubernetes influencer fits better. <laughs> so let's go with that. Um, uh, I wanted to ask you um, if there's some things you can share without having to kill me. Um, if we could talk a little bit about about Kubernetes specifically at AWS, um, because I'm I'm pretty curious about that. You're obviously the the big cloud provider. Um, I'm curious like what kinds of things you see people doing there when it comes to Kubernetes, like um, especially the difference between like a managed service like EKS or, or people rolling their own Kubernetes clusters. I was a big fan of cops or chaos um, back in the day um, when, when I was at Disney and, and it, it helped us in a lot of ways run clusters and it had a lot of cool benefits of like rolling upgrades and, all of these things that were kind of difficult to do and to get right in, in different ways. Like, you know, there's always like, I could do it in Terraform. I could stand it up. And then like, how do I migrate this? How do I safely make sure this happens? And, and Chaos did some of that for me. It just like built in like, Hey, you want a rolling upgrade of your, of your nodes? We can do that. And, and so it was kind of a layer on top of Terraform to be able to do some of that stuff, but I still had to manage some of the bits control plane, whatever else I had to manage the size and auto scaling and that sort of stuff. And newer versions of that is, is more along the lines of like cluster API cluster API can give me, you know, a Kubernetes cluster, um, self-managed or managed in a lot of cases, right? Like I can use a cluster API cluster and get an EKS cluster and, and it just, you know, manages the other bits around that or configuration and nodes and those sorts of things. And it does a lot of the same stuff on top of what, you know, a, a raw Terraform or something might give me, um, mainly around the like upgrade uh, cycle. And then EKS has been moving in those directions for a lot of things where it was like, originally it was the control plane, bring your own nodes. But the hard part for a lot of operators was like, I can't do upgrades easily. I always had to like manually like scale down an ASG or manually scale it up. And like, I had to balance those things. And, and so those sorts of things were still tricky. And EKS has, has come a long way since, you know, 
I've been here, not, not to my own, like, uh, reasons, but just like the team was going that direction anyway. Like there was like managed node groups came out and, and really made it a lot easier. Just like, oh yeah, I want to cluster. I don't want this many nodes. And then like, I don't just manage them for me. Right. It's like, that's the, the goal. It's just like, get rid of all of that other stuff that I needed. Yeah. I still see it. Yeah. It's still there. I can still pick custom AMIs. I can still pick, um, configuration and some things flexible in that, but I really just didn't want to have to upgrade it myself. I, I didn't want to be responsible for like yeah, those downtime situations. Uh, and now I see a lot, even more things, um, such as Carpenter, right? Like Carpenter is coming out and, or has been out and lets you do some of that stuff and more where I'm just like, Hey, actually managing a bunch of different managed node groups is kind of hard. And I, I have workloads in this cluster. Some of them need GPUs. Some of them might want arms. Some of them want really large instances. And we always kind of pick that least common denominator, uh, even though nothing in Kubernetes required us to, the tooling and, and just the, the math of like, is, will this all fit was just easier if everything was the same size. And, and now we're trying to make a lot of those things even easier, which is like, hey, you have a Kubernetes cluster now, we can also upgrade those things for you and we can handle, you know, when they're going away, but also a, ver a variable, you know, mixed fleet where none of your cluster, none of your nodes are the same size. They don't have to be. Um, Carpenter just a couple weeks ago launched consolidation, which is it'll look at the cluster over time and figure out are any nodes not being utilized very much? Did we create like a really big one when you scaled up? But a lot of those workloads are gone now. So now maybe that'll fit somewhere else. Or maybe we can just replace it with a smaller node and we can save you money over time. And now it's not just about, hey, let me scale this and upgrade it. But now it's also about, hey, let's lower the cost. Let's make sure that we're running this as efficient as possible. And so a lot of that process has accelerated on the EKS side where the other do it yourself. Like you have to still find another third-party project or something to layer in on top to do some of those things. And so I've been really excited about that stuff where it's just EKS for the operators has been helping so much in those areas that were originally really hard. And we, I, I mean, I, I think we've been doing a good job. If people disagree, please let me know. I'm, I'm available on Twitter. Um, I, I love to hear the complaints because the complaints are how we yeah. grow. The complaints are the, the things that it's just like, hey, yeah, there's a gap here. Absolutely. And, and we have an open roadmap of every gap that we know about, right? Like, like this, our roadmap is on GitHub. It's like, if there's a gap there, please plus one it. Um, because we, we literally go off of that roadmap and say like, Hey, this has a million plus ones. We should do it. This is, it makes sense to be able to do these things. Um, and, and getting that feedback is the, the best way for us to know that we absolutely talk to customers, but there's a lot of people out there that don't talk to a TAM regularly or don't, you know, pay for enterprise support or whatever. And those are the, the customers that might be feeling some of the gaps the hardest and making sure that we meet their needs as well has been really difficult. Um, but I've been, I've been excited just knowing how much EKS has operationalized Kubernetes uh, beyond just what used to exist with my own Terraform or, um, you know, KOps or Cluster API. It's interesting that you mentioned the upgrading because I feel like that's that's always one of the big arguments I've heard for using GKE as well. So it's it seems like that's that's a common pain point that a lot of people have and that they would prefer somebody else worry about and, <laughs> so they don't have to do it. And I was I was a big user of ECS in the past. ECS is essentially versionless. You never have to upgrade your your version of ECS as an agent. Like it's just it is something that exists. It'll orchestrate containers and it is simple and it it allows you to just keep the cluster going and and I don't manage any control plane because that's all 
an API and it's API calls. I manage the nodes. Uh, but as far as like the agents on them and how those things run, like those, that was a big win um, at a previous job too, where it's just like, oh, guess what? Like, I don't have to upgrade this right now because we don't have the time. We don't have the cycles to do it. So I, we will, you know, for new features or whatever. Um, but there's other options that do exist. Like, you know, Nomad, <laughs> again, you can you can use other tools that if if that is a big enough pain point or you don't have the skill set available to do that, and you can't for some reason offload it to AWS to do it for you with a managed node group or Carpenter or something, then yeah, use. we have plenty of other tools. There are other options that allow you to do some of that too um, without making that like the make or break point of like, oh, I can't, I can't do these upgrades all the time. It's like, okay, like that's fine. Like if you can't offload it to us, then let's figure out a better solution. Let's figure out the right solution for you. ECS was actually my next question <laughs> on the list. So... <laughs> If you can talk about, I wonder if if you have thoughts about um, use cases, like why you would go with ECS as opposed to EKS. I is it just mainly the upgrading stuff? Or, oh no, no, or, not, or not at all. Uh, I I was at uh, Disney Streaming after Disney Animation, and and Disney Plus was built on ECS. Um, there was it, it was what we were using. It was how we were. Um, deploying services and it scaled to Disney Plus needs um, with a team of uh, about four of us managing infrastructure. And I was amazed at how well ECS handled the load, everything we threw at it. Every time we were just like, oh, like we have to scale more. Oh, we don't know. We didn't know what launch was going to be like. We, we went from zero to 10 million users in one day. And and that was a huge sign up process and a huge load on all of our infrastructure. and. I never got a page. I never got paged for any of our services. The infrastructure, the ECS just just took it and services ran and things rescheduled as needed. And it was an amazing win for us as a as a service team being able to ship that. I even I recorded a reinvent talk after I joined Amazon with someone that I used to work with, Zach at uh, Disney Streaming. And then he and I were peers on like that infrastructure productivity engineering team. And and he talked all about like how they, how we built deployments. We had our own deployment tooling and and it worked internally for what we needed for Disney Plus. And so um I love the like simplicity of it. If you're just getting started and you're like I don't know what I need, uh I always tell people start with ECS. Um there's two tools that I I think are fantastic. There's Copilots, which is not to be confused with all the other Copilots out there. <laughs> um there is an Amazon <laughs> Copilot which will which will just run your code on ECS. It gives you a cluster and it gives you a service and it just runs it. And you can add on storage and all this other stuff that you can extend it. Um, but also there's a Docker uh, Compose plugin, Docker ECS plugin, that you can just use your Docker Compose file and run it directly on ECS. And oh, wow. so you can I run didn't a, know about Yeah, that. you can run Docker Compose locally and then you can run Docker Compose deployed to ECS. And, and if you're getting started with containers, like do it, like just, just run with those. Like those are great. Like you don't, if you're not using Kubernetes yet and you don't know that you need it, don't use it. Uh, there's way easier ways to onboard to like, I need to deploy something to the cloud. Um, I also helped launch AppRunner uh, at AWS after I got here, which is, again, it's just like, here's a container give me a web endpoint, right? Like, I don't care about the load balancer. I don't care yeah. about schedulers. I don't care about any of that stuff. I have a container and I just want you to run it for me. And it's going to accept some traffic and, and that works. And you can just run those things too. And so like, there's a lot of simple, I don't want to say, like, not, they're not simple. They are still difficult. Like containers, yeah. developments, cloud, it is difficult. I totally don't want to uh, <laughs> just 
pass that away as like, oh, everyone should understand this stuff. No, like it took me years and yeah. years to like learn just the fundamentals of like, what is this thing doing? Um, but it is more simple than Kubernetes. If you're jumping in, you're like Kubernetes, I have to do it. It's like, no, you don't. Like you can, you can run things at, at Disney plus scale without any Kubernetes. You can run things at uh, plenty of other scales and, and whatever your need is, complexity for your application, your infrastructure, or your organization. If your team is only three, four people, like you're gonna be managing Kubernetes maybe, uh, unless you're offloading some of that stuff, right? <laughs> like there's there are things you're gonna have to do, but you could go with different solutions and and offload some of the burden on the team and just the complexity of like who's, coordinating things and, and getting rid of the spreadsheet is a, is a goal. Um, but at the same time, like that, you can also pick something else that, that also that will work for you. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm a big uh, proponent of using the thing that works for your use case, right. As opposed to like thinking that, you know, Kubernetes needs to be like the Maslow's hammer, you know, that you use to like do every single thing you have to do. Yeah. And it was really eye opening for me going from, building and running Kubernetes to running ECS. And and I was all about like, oh, we should move this to Kubernetes. And when I got there to, to streaming, we had 11 months to ship Disney Plus. I was like, there's no way we're doing any Kubernetes. Like we are not touching that yet. So like maybe in the future, like maybe, maybe at one day it makes sense. But right now, like we need to ship and we need to make sure things are stable and we need to scale. And, and ECS handled all of that for us, which was awesome from my perspective. Fantastic. Um, I asked for listener questions and we got one from Charles Landau. Thank you, Charles. Um, he's Landau underscore Charles on um, Twitter, and I'll link to that in the show notes. Um, Charles asks, uh, what's in store for the AWS auth config map? For anyone not aware, EKS clusters have a, a config map in them, which map authentication for users, for IAM users into the cluster. So you can say, I have an IAM user that has access to AWS. I need them to have access into this Kubernetes cluster as well. And there's different ways you can manage Kubernetes access. Uh, there's OIDC, there's all these other options for like, if you want, you know, how people are accessing the cluster. And the AWS auth config map was our way to just kind of merge AWS IAM with with Kubernetes and, and it was a native Kubernetes solution, but we also know that there's some gaps there. There's some things that it could be better and, and managing that config map becomes a difficult problem because yeah, you can lock it down with RBAC or something, um, but it's still tricky when you're editing it, if you're deploying changes to it, uh, if it is the linchpin of like, you have access to the cluster or you don't. And so if you mess that up, if you don't indent indent your YAML properly, you can lose access to the cluster. And that is a big concern. And it's something that allowed us to get people integrated, get, get Kubernetes natively integrated into AWS authentication. But at the same time, we know there's gaps and we know we want to eventually replace that. And so there's something, you know, we're, we're definitely talking to people if you have, you know, something you would want. Ideally, authentication to the Kubernetes cluster becomes more of a native AWS service. It's a little more integrated on the IAM side because especially at larger companies, IAM is the thing. You, you don't RBAC all of AWS, but you, I, you know, but IAM is there and we need that a little more native into Kubernetes. And so how we get that integrated into cluster access um, really is just a matter of like, how do we integrate that into EKS APIs? And how do we get that as something that is a little safer to do and make sure that people understand, hey, 
you can give access to these things, you know, inside of the cluster. We, we did things like um, uh, IAM roles for service accounts, uh, which is like a native way to give you a service account with an annotation on it. And that gives you access to an IAM role in the cluster inside of AWS. So you can call different things. And, and how do we make that a little more native from the EKS cluster wide? of a, this isn't a service account. This is just like, I need to access the API. So right. we have plans for it. We have some ideas on, on how we want to integrate it and make it just safer to give that as like an option for people of, you know, let's let's get away from something that is uh, YAML specific. Like there is no error checking on it necessarily. You can give all the recommendations <laughs> of like, put a web hook on it, put a validating, uh, you know, hook on yeah. it or something before anyone like mutates it. Um, but in practice, like it just doesn't happen. It's just something that's like, hey, all the great advice in the world on how to make this better um, is still, it's still on us as AWS. Like we should- Yeah, you we, can't really trust people to do all the right well, things. And we have right? to own that. We own the IAM side of it. So we have to make sure that we are making that as safe as possible. And so we don't have anything that's like cemented right now of like, hey, this is what it's going to be. Uh, but we definitely hear yeah. the pain points and we know that like this was a thing that existed and it's been working for a long time. It's been great to get people that are native Kubernetes users are like, oh, I love config maps. I love doing this stuff here. Um, but then like bringing the rest of the people on board and making it safer um, has been a little more difficult. Cool. Um, Justin, uh, I've had such a blast talking with you and I feel like I could talk with you for another hour, but I, I need to let you go. Um, I will uh, link to a bunch of the things that we've talked about in the show notes, including your Twitter and your fantastic TikTok. Is there anything else you want to mention real quick uh, before we go? No, I don't think so. Um, it's It's been a blast talking to you. Uh, I'm just, you know, yeah. trying to have fun. I'm still, you know, engaged in the Kubernetes community and, and just I love meeting new people whenever I go to a conference and just hear what people are doing. Um solving their own problems and, and getting themselves unblocked. I just I love hearing that stuff. So uh, feel free, you know, anyone can reach out and let me know um, whether it's EKS or not. Uh, I've been a Kubernetes user for for long before I was uh, at Amazon. And so yeah. um, it's just been a great community to be part of and kind of grow with. All right. Thanks so much, Justin. Thanks, Rich. KubeCuddle was created and hosted by me, Rich Burroughs. If you enjoyed the podcast, please consider telling a friend. It helps a lot. Big thanks to Emily Griffin, who designed the logo. You can find her at DaveBrighton.com. And thanks to Montplacer for our music. You can find more of his work at LoyaltyFreakMusic.com. Thanks a lot for listening.